Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 27. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my doctor, my friend, Robert Carter. Hello. How are you doing, Rob? Hey, Joe. I'm not your doctor, man. (laughs) (laughs) You're everyone's doctor on this show. I want to call you Doc, like a Marty or something, and say, this is heavy. (laughs) But I haven't got there yet. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Staying busy. Good. Glad to hear it. Oh, let me tell you something really cool that happened, though. Please do. I, I read this this paper last week. Someone sent it to me. It's about, they're looking at like ancient man and their genetics. Oh, yeah. And they're looking at the mutations that they carried and how those mutations either increase or decrease in frequency over time to up to modern times. I said, like, that's really cool. Now, is that selection? Is that random change? You know, there's lots of things that can change the frequencies of mutations. But then I'm looking at this paper and I'm like, where'd they get their data? And oh, they got it from this place. I'm click, 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 click. And all of a sudden, I'm on David Reich's lab, uh, their website at Harvard. And he's got cataloged, literally, I downloaded a file of 10,000 individuals whose genomes have been sequenced. Holy smokes. From modern times to deep times. <laughs> but it's not the entire genome. It's, it's only uh, about 500,000 single letters spread out through the genome. Oh, okay. And it took me a day or so to figure out the file format. And because I don't, you know, they use this program to unpack it, but, you know, that's probably for, you know, a Unix machine or something like that. Specific tools. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I I can't do that. So what I did was I figured out how they pack the information into the data. And I've been writing programs. I've got it done. I'm going to redo it because I have to, you know, toggle one little thing, but I've pulled it all out. And now I've got 10,000 ancient individuals, some modern individuals. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at, Rare letters. Rare letters. That are next to each other. Hmm. Yeah, like, you know, this person has only 1% of the people have an A at that spot or a G at this spot. Mm-hmm. Well, this guy's got an A and a G, two very rare letters. And I'm going to look in time forward to see who else carries that rare combination. Ooh, okay. So having a rare combination like that would not be a mutation, but it would be what exactly? What does that mean? Because if the letter isn't usually there. Well, it, could be, it could be a mutation or well, what it is it? It's a marker for a piece of DNA that this person carried that some of his descendants might also carry. Oh, yeah, of course. All right. That's and it. it might not even be his descendants, but you know, relatives, because he inherited this piece of DNA from somebody maybe. But it, there's a family line here, and I'm going to try to see if I can you – know, I'm going to find the biggest piece of DNA that I can easily identify in modern people and ancient people. Nice. That's nice. going to be a fun project. I thought you were going to say you were going to build the first genetically engineered artificial intelligence or something with those 10,000 collections. <laughs> no, not quite. Though It's just as exciting. Uh, you know, after we had last week's episode, or was it the one before that? I can't remember. Last week. We were talking about the atomic bomb. And you came across this newly released footage from Russia. Yes. This is awesome. Yes. I saw some of this, and it's it's disturbing. Oh, it's totally <laughs> disturbing. But it was new vid- or old video footage of the Tsar bomb, the largest nuclear explosion in world history in the 1950s, that they declassified the day after we did our podcast. Hmm. <laughs> I think that there's a correlation. I think absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. Now, is that res- Should we create our po- a first podcast vertical because of this? It's going to be about explosives and atomic bombs, nuclear warheads, and things like that. 
Do you know what a do you know what a vertical is? No, I was gonna ask you, what's a vertical? Well, it's sort of got a double meaning in this context, but a vertical is just, you know, when a show has something that they use over and over again, a topic that's evergreen, they come back to it again and again. It could be something for side items or... Oh, like bees. Yeah, like bees. We just never declared it. That's but right. I think that... Bees and bombs. Unofficially, bees... Yes, there we go. <laughs> we should have a little... A corner of the show for bees and bombs. <laughs> <laughs> I do have some follow-up for bees, but I'm going to save that for next week's episode. All right, fair enough. So we will have a link to this video in the show notes because it really is just interesting... Eerie. ...information to see. It's a strange. Oh, yeah. Oh. Now, you wanted to also mention, though, because it is intriguing, and I certainly have questions about it, deja vu. Do you, do you want to tap on that a second? I have a strange recollection that the, you and I talked about this before. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yes. Wait a minute. It's, it's like it's, this has already happened before. So when we were talking about brains and memory, something that we didn't discuss was deja vu. Oh, yes. It was two weeks ago was the A-bomb episode because we did, we did uh, brains last week. It was two weeks ago. Ah, uh, yes, That's my right. memory was failing <laughs> we me. We forgot about the memory episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Deja vu. Oh, serendipity. Okay, so deja vu, though. Well, the, the funny thing is when we were talking about it, both of us said that it hasn't happened in a long time. It happened more often when we were kids than it does today. Was that true yes, for you? Yes, we were saying that after the show. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's weird. I remember happening almost all the time. Yeah, I remember playing uh, Little League. Standing out in one particular ball field, and there's four ball, f- ball fields in a complex, and I just had this sudden flash that I'd done exactly this before, but I don't know. It just flashed on me like it was so familiar, like all the people in the same place and all that kind of stuff. It was just weird. Yeah. Now, deja vu never means like a premonition of what is about to happen. It always means it is a reflection on what just took place, what has happened, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like like you've been there before. Yeah, that that next to never happens to me anymore. And I, I heard one explanation. I was curious if this is the the issue is that something about your your gray matter is just developing, and you, the the signals firing in your brain are just a little bit different at the time. And that stuff settled down mostly for adults. I'm just curious, like if if it has to do with biological growth, and while you're going through growth spurt. Yeah, I I, I don't know, but. But when both of us said that it hadn't happened in a while and happened a lot as kids, I wonder if that's true for other people also. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Never really had a conversation about it. Mm. Interesting. So if any of our listeners have experienced more deja vu in your adult years, please let us know. I'd be curious to know what that's like. Or if this has also been true of your experience, have you noticed that deja vu experiences are mostly re- you know, relegated to your youth? And I had one other question about brains. Yeah, what's that? And I know, I know this is this is this is just you know one of those things that gets around that you hear and you wonder. I've heard from nutritionists that some fruits and vegetables that resemble certain bodily organs oh, right. happen to be good for those organs. <laughs> and you know you can't verify the thing when a nutritionist is telling you this, and they say that this thing that just happens to be about the shape and size of a you know, human heart is really good for your heart and your blood pressure, you know? Yeah. Mm, no. The one that gets around the most is walnuts with brains. That they, walnuts are good for your brains. They definitely and look like walnuts brains. Walnuts look like brains. They sure do. I, I can't say. I don't, I don't know enough about the nu- nutrition, but I imagine that there might be one or two foods that just randomly just happen to have something that's good for you. But 
I think if you ate walnuts or didn't eat walnuts, it would have zero impact on your intellect. <laughs> Maybe good for the gray matter itself, but not necessarily any enhancement. Yeah, in other words, you can't notice a difference because whatever's in walnuts, you're going to get from other foods also. Oh, you know, something happened to me also. I was uh, reviewing for that episode and I was watching all these different videos, you know, make sure I knew what I was talking about as best I can, reading a lot of websites. And there's one particular YouTube video, I'm watching it. And as soon as they showed the background picture, which they used about 15 times in this video, <laughs> I knew it wasn't a brain. <laughs> it was actually, it was a pseudodeplorious strigosa. It was a, <laughs> which is a Caribbean brain coral. <laughs> oh. And it looks brainy. Yeah, it looks brainy. But it, it looks not brainy. A brain. It's okay. not a brain. It's a coral. It's a, <laughs> basically a jellyfish on top of a rock that twists itself around to a brain shape. But they use it as the backdrop and with all the text in front of them looking at it, I was like, wait a second, that's that's not a brain. I don't even know if they knew it. Because <laughs> no one ever, you know, maybe it was an that's Easter funny. egg, but they didn't say anything. It was just really weird. Yeah, subtle things like that could be creative license or maybe a complete mistake. You never know. I don't know. I've never made such a mistake in my career oh, as a graphic not. designer and never. video producer. No, never. I nope. can't imagine nope. you would ever do something like that. Nope. Podcasting, 100% true facts here. <laughs> So I'm ready to move on into the primary discussion. Me and too. I wanted to mention before we do get to the discussion, that there are a few episodes about genetics that we've already discussed, ancient DNA and family ancestry. And if you're interested at all in family trees and human genetics, those would be a great starting point. So if you are just joining us for the podcast with episode 27 for the first time, I would actually recommend you go back and listen to those episodes. So we'll put links to those in the show notes uh, before you continue. Yeah. Any thoughts about the human genetic subjects that we've already covered? Not unless you want to spend two hours talking about human genetics again. No, no, we're good. Okay. Okay, right. cool. It's one of those things like like when I'm when I'm speaking in churches, I don't talk about genetics. Because if I do, I can't stop talking about it. <laughs> so I talk about rocks and fossils and Noah's flood and things like that in the Bible. But I don't mention Adam and Eve or genetics or humanity in my main, my main Sunday morning talks. Because, yeah. Uh, I, I would think it would kill you. <laughs> yeah, you got to get it out. I do. But that's why they usually have me for Sunday school or come back at 5 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon or something like that. Then I get to talk about what I really want to talk about. Nice. Nice. All right, well then, for the main topic, right. we are going to discuss Neanderthal technology. Yes, we are. This is really interesting to me for a few reasons. One is that I love technology, Rob, and I don't know if you knew that. Yes. And I, I want us to discuss technology subjects more in the future. I actually thought of a technology-related subject I added to our list of future topics before we started today's show. What was that? Sort of like a look at innovations and the progress of technology over the millennia, the acceleration of a lot of innovations oh, in the cool. last few centuries. Cool. I, my dad, um, he was an engineer and at his factory, they got this uh, magazine called American Heritage of Invention and Technology. And he always brought that magazine to me when I was, was, when I was a kid. And I read, in fact, I still have that nice. stacked up in my office on my bookshelf. It sounds like a good book. Uh, what you call it, magazines? Yeah, that does yeah. sound like great magazines to thumb through every now and then. Yeah, and I will pick one up, just flip through it, and you know, talk about some railroad tunnel in Pennsylvania that connected X, Y, and Z, and yeah, or you know, some new invention here or there. And it's just it's really cool. I like, love the sound of that. Go back in time and talk about ancient technology. Well, can we begin with a conversation that you and I had earlier this year? Sure. What was it? You and I were talking about 
dairy cows or something. Okay. In, in passing, you said one of the strangest <laughs> things I've ever heard. I did. That um, the, the dairy cow is a great technology or yep. so, uh, like it, it was w- one of the greatest innovations. And in, in passing, you said it so matter of factly. Like, yeah, one of the greatest technological innovations in world history was a dairy cow. Sure enough. So that made me wonder, what do you mean by technology? And are we discussing technology from a sort of like how scientists view technology versus the going general public? Well, it took a lot of smart people a long time to figure out the dairy cow, how to breed them to produce a lot of milk, (laughs) what to do with the milk once it was made. I mean, it, it, it took a lot of thinking and a lot of experimenting over a long time. And when it was finished in its near modern form, it produced so much food for the people that had them that they dominate the modern genetic landscape today. Mm. Just calories. I mean, calories are important. And it, just milk has got a great balance of a lot of fats and proteins and, and things like that. And just boom, it's good for you. If you're not <laughs> lactose intolerant, which most adults are, but that's why they make cheese. Because the bacteria eat up all the lactose, and most people can eat cheese even if they're lactose intolerant. Not all people, most people. That is awesome. That's one of God's greatest gifts to lactose intolerant people. Cheese. Because <laughs> cheese is so good. Yeah, I cheese all the time. We, we do have a listener of the show that is a dairy farmer. Really? Hello, dairy farmer. Yeah, Ruben. It's great to, it's great to have you on board. I have gone through his family's dairy farm, and I'm super impressed by all the technology that is there. But we're not necessarily talking about the dairy farmers' technologies today. You wanted to get around to the Neanderthal technology. Yeah. And I, I'm very curious. Let's begin with Neanderthals. Okay. Uh, is it pronounced Neanderthal or Neanderthal? Because I've heard both. Um, it's spelled both ways. Is that just to confuse American English versus like British English no, people? No, it's German's fault. It's a German's fault. Okay. Um, Thal, T-H-A-L, means valley in German. But in late 1800s, I think they revised all their spellings because they pronounce it tall. And so now they drop the H. Oh, okay. So the tall is the more modern way of pronouncing it. I would have thought it was the other way around. Uh, I think it's pronounced in German tall. But in English, we, there's an H, so we say fall. But some people say tall because that's how it's pronounced in German. But the scientific name is Homo sapiens neanderthalensis. Oh, so it has an H in the scientific name. So I know, you know, people argue, but honestly, I don't care that German is modified. They change it fine. We're talking about Latin here. And the way the Germans pronounce things has nothing to do with the way the rest of the world can pronounce it. Gotcha. So yeah, thal and tall, spelling and pronunciation are both accepted in the scientific literature. And about half the scientific world does either. Okay. So then Neanderthals, uh, in the general speaking terms, as, a, as part of the past, were they, did they represent like the earliest man or the majority of the earliest man or what exactly? Neither. Because I think that a lot of people got the idea that they're just cavemen. Yes, but neither is true. Okay. They're um, actually a lot later than a lot of the earliest. Now, you know, we're going to have to delve into evolutionary terminology and some evolutionary dates here which I don't necessarily agree with, fine. But there is a, a general order to the events anyway. So they wouldn't have called them the earliest examples of primitive man anyway. They would have cited them as a, a few generations uh, down the road closer to us. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, okay, uh, it's the latest Neanderthals that 
are the most Neanderthal-like. Hmm. The classic Neanderthal shape is the end. The early Neanderthals, um, they look like uh, something called Homo heidelbergensis, <laughs> which is a lot more modern-looking than Neanderthals were. In fact, there was a cave they found in Spain, and they're it might have been Cima de los Huesos, the pit of bones. I love that. Cima de los Huesos. <laughs> they're, they're digging in there and they're finding all these intermediate type forms and they're like, this looks like the ancestors to Neanderthals because they look more like Homo heidelbergensis than Neanderthals. And after DNA work, it, they, they do look like the ancestors to, to Neanderthals. So they morphed over time. They changed into the Neanderthal shape. Hmm, okay. We're assuming here that Neanderthals were real. <laughs> well, is there any doubts there? There might be people listening who wonder because they might not have seen them or they might not they might know that there's been a couple of Neanderthal skeletons found, maybe, but you know, are they faked? Did the the paleontologist, you know, massage the bones until they made them look stooped over and things like that? But it's the um the modern data on Neanderthals. We literally have dozens of them from dozens of countries. Oh, I think there's 60 different sites that we found Neanderthals from Spain to Eastern Russia and all the way south to Israel. Interesting. And, huh. and, and, but the weird thing is about one third of all the Neanderthal skeletons are children. Why would that be? That does seem like a... It, it's strange, but you know, high mortality rate amongst children, okay. Hmm. But in other places, you don't get a third of the skeletons as children. But they just are. And, and, and the first times we find symbolic representation in graves, like an antler from a deer buried with a child or a flint knife that was on their chest when they were buried, um, is in the Neanderthal children. Now, they've found a lot of other things in Neanderthal graves now. But the first ones they found, like, wait a second, this looks like symbolic, which changes the picture of what people think Neanderthals were. Hmm. Because that's the open question, isn't it? Were they stupid? Were they brutish? Were they half ape and half human? Were they so dumb they couldn't build a house? Those are really interesting questions. And the latest paleontological work is challenging everything we used to think about them. And the genetics work is, is even more challenging. But the paleontologists are dragging their feet because they've had generations of paleontologists saying things about Neanderthals that are no longer true. Ooh. It's just hard to say, oh, yeah, we were wrong. <laughs> That's not the way science works, because people are people. Okay, on that note, I just got to bring it up. All right. I noticed that in just the last few centuries, there has been a lot of revisions to science in general. Yeah. They've come out and said, oh, we were wrong about yes. you know, the, you know, how the human brain develops. We were wrong about health. We were wrong about old age. We were wrong about, you know, uh, dental hygiene. It, on and on it goes. And it's sort of a given that as long as we have the current state of scientific knowledge, we say that X, Y, and Z are facts. But then something like this can come up and change all the facts. And then uh, the textbooks have to be revised. Yes. And everybody generally just understands that this is the way of scientific progress. So if you want scientific progress, won't you allow it to change? Scientific progress happens in fits and starts. And what happens is when one old guy who's been controlling the most influential person in the field who's been controlling the papers dies. There's usually a flurry of new papers and new ideas, and the, the field will, will shift. But that one old stodgy old 
person was slowing down the progress. That's that's what is oh, what happens. That's actually yeah. been documented in the scientific literature. Okay, that explains a lot. Yeah, something like that could be happening again in paleontology. Oh yeah. Hmm. Have you have I used this phrase on the show maybe early on? The phrase "we now know." Have I explained to you what that means to a scientist? Yes, you have. Do you remember what You've I said? You said something to the effect. I almost laughed, but I let you go with it. And you said something to the effect of such and such used to be scientific fact, and now it's changed. Yeah. When, <laughs> when, when a scientist like, says, now? we now know, that means I was wrong yesterday. <laughs> the things I was saying yesterday, just ignore that. I'm not going to say that anymore. Now I'm going to say this. I love that phrase. We now Let's not know. even go back to that. But we now know a lot about Neanderthals <laughs> that we did not know 20 years ago. And the picture is so different. I do remember going up thinking that Neanderthals were ancient, stupid cavemen, if yeah. they were even true. What we really knew about them was so sketchy that we weren't even positive that they were getting anything accurate about the bones like that that was my impression of yes the scientific information while i was a child and that has completely changed <laughs> completely changed <laughs> we now know enough to say some things about neanderthals very positively however everything we're about to talk about is debatable and is disputed amongst paleontologists incredible and it would be kind of unfair to cherry pick all the paleontological ideas that fit my ideas about Neanderthals, but I'm probably going to do a lot of that anyway, because, you know, I do have an opinion on the subject, but Good for, you. <laughs> for every opinion, there's another expert who disagrees for every one of these things we're going to talk about. But yeah, okay. still, I mean, we find these things associated with Neanderthals. You know, this is a Neanderthal thing. You know, the more we say it, the more we're talking about them and we call them Neanderthals, it almost feels like it dehumanizes them. It like as does. I'm thinking about them, I want to not perceive them as human beings. I was going to say exactly the same thing. It's Homo huh. sapiens okay. neanderthalensis. It's not Homo neanderthalensis. Ah. They're human. They're human human. I mean, 60% of the Neanderthal genome is found in modern humans. Yeah. We are Neanderthals. Wow. So in terms of just genetic mutations and, and handicaps, they were far from primitive. They were not necessarily advanced, but in a way, they were better off than we are today. Well, they definitely weren't advanced, but they were surviving in an environment that would kill you and me tomorrow. <laughs> it was rough. Wow. They were living in, in Europe and Asia, you know, as ice is building up and melting on the continent, they're living in the most marginal environment you could imagine. And life was hard. Oh, so this was around the time of the Ice Age. Yeah. Yeah, evolutionary dating puts them in Europe 250,000 years ago to 25,000 years ago. And the end of the last Ice Age was 10,000 years ago in the evolutionary model. So they, they survived several major climatic cycles and basically disappeared when... The people we call modern man expanded out of the Middle East with their high technology called the cow hmm. and farms. And there's just so many more of them. They overwhelmed the Neanderthals who never had a large population. So then historically, you know, uh, evolution's timeline and uh, like a, a, a super duper scientific approach to history, just in general terms, they came along after the global flood then. Yeah. In the, like, you know, we can take that as scientific fact. Yeah. There's plenty of evidence. We can talk about that another time. Creation context, they're a post-flood yeah. people. In fact, I have an article on creation.com, were Neanderthals pre-flood. It's a 
Interesting question. The answer is no. There's no way. I mean, besides the fact that their DNA is in us, but it's not in Africans. It's only in Europeans and Asians, which means they weren't in Africa. They had it has to be post-flood. And their graves and things are in you know caves that would have been disturbed by a global flood. So you, yeah, in the creation context, they have to be post-flood. Early, way early, <laughs> but not, um, yeah. Okay, well then explain to us what the Neanderthal technology looks like and why it's intriguing. Okay, well, we, we have this group of people and there's only a couple of thousand of them. And we can guess that because of their genetics. We can look at how inbred they are, and it's actually shocking how inbred they are. So when you say it's shocking, is it because they, it's shocking that they could even survive with that much inbreeding? or It's shocking because no modern population has inbreeding levels like that. Oh. And we're talking about a population that is from the Atlantic coast of Spain to the Russian border with Mongolia. That's how spread out they are. But there's only a few thousand of them in little groups, five or 10 people per group, and they're exchanging DNA because we can see some of the, hey, this person is related to that person over there and you know, 2,000 miles away. And somehow they're communicating with each other and somehow they know where they are, which is bizarre. You know, if, if you started in Europe, you just started marching east. There's no way you're going to come upon... Denis of a cave on the border between China, Mongolia, and Kazakhstan. There's no way. It's in the middle of absolute nowhere. And yet, the strangest thing, they found a girl, a skeleton, and she's 50% Neanderthal and 50% from another enigmatic group of people called the Denisovans who are as different from us as Neanderthals are. Oh, wow. She's 50-50. But the Neanderthal part, wasn't related to another Neanderthal skeleton buried three feet away. The Neanderthal part was related to the Neanderthals from Croatia, which is right next to Italy. Really? That is so weird. So somehow a Neanderthal individual marched from Croatia eastward for thousands of miles and in- intersected or intermated with or you know had a fling or a wife of another group of people that are very distantly related to modern humans and Neanderthals called the Denisovans, and they left a child behind. Cool. That is very, very, very unusual. It is cool. Yeah, very cool. And But even, here's the weirdest thing, though, because we know that Neanderthals and modern man had children together, or else we wouldn't have their DNA. Well, okay, explain what you mean by modern man, then. Okay. What does well, that mean? It, it means the way, the way modern people look. We have a high forehead, we have thin bones. Uh, we we tend to be tall and skinny. They call it gracile, as in as opposed to robust. Neanderthals are robust. Ah. They had thicker bones, big teeth, strong foreheads, big brow ridges. You know, big jaws, strong. Mu- you can tell from the muscle attachment points on the bones, uh, from the size of the tendon, they must have been muscular. There's a and and the the ratio of their bones was different. I don't, I don't remember how it goes though. I think the upper arm bone is longer than the lower arm bone, and the legs are that way too. Your your femur is different than your tibia, but the Neanderthals had the opposite ratio, which means they were stout and stocky. They wouldn't run a marathon, hmm. but someone said some paleontologist said that a female Neanderthal could have beaten Arnold Schwarzenegger at an arm wrestling competition in his prime. No, I think that's a bit overkill, <laughs> and I don't know if that's true or not. 
but they were built for power. They're really tough, stocky, sturdy, strong group of people. And apparently they didn't live very long, And but they weren't dying oh. of old age. So when you say dying of old age, okay, so the inbreeding then. Well, that, no, the, you know, we have Neanderthals, their skulls are cracked. Their legs are broken. They've been hit by a spear or something like that. There's a lot of trauma in Neanderthal graves. But it's also true in other ancient people, too. You see a, a grave site for, you know, early so-called modern man in Europe. There's a lot of people that get hit with spears or cracked on a skull with a rock. Trauma was a way Whoa. of life for these people, much more so than today. You would assume, if you didn't know a lot about paleontology, that if you came across one people group like the Neanderthals, and that that's what their bones looked like, then you would say, yeah, these were primitive, pretty dumb people that were backwoods and just barbaric and probably because they were uneducated and couldn't be educated. But then, like you said, that kind of discounts a lot of that misnomer. It does. In fact, uh, the Neanderthal brain on average is larger than the modern brain. Now, remember last episode about the brain, I said you could have a doubling of brain size and it doesn't affect your intelligence. Well, Neanderthal brains on average are larger than that of modern man. (laughs) And it is impressive. (laughs) We know most of them are right-handed. Why does that matter? Well, it doesn't matter, but it was just an interesting little fact. You can tell from the brain and it the, is interesting, the pattern yeah. it leaves on the inside of the skull if you're right-handed or left-handed. And you can tell from the wear on their tools that they're using them in the right hand. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they're very normal. It's just that, I mean, think of um, you know, farmers. Farmers traditionally don't get great educations. They don't go to Harvard and then go get a go on a farm, right? Nope. And people that are farming historically they need to graze enough food to eat, and that's what they are concerned about. And if you have a drought or if you have a locust plague or something, there's no education happening here. You are fighting tooth and nail to survive, and that's what the Neanderthals are doing. And if you think about, um, if you were a hunter and gatherer, doesn't mean you're, you're primitive necessarily, uh, but you've got to scour the landscape for meat and herbs and nuts and seeds and everything like that. And you have to have it all stored up in the fall or you die that winter. Dog eat dog world. And so sure, you might be able to survive October and November and December. But honestly, the hungriest months is early spring, March. Oh, that makes sense. April. I mean, it's been six months since the last time you harvested food. Ouch. And you're starting to get lean and hungry. And that's hard. That does not leave time for poetry or music making, even though there's some evidence of Neanderthals in their music. Uh, It's a hard life. It's a tough life. Very, very difficult. It's a lot more difficult than farming because farmers actually make surplus food because of that high technology, the cow and wheat and things like that. (laughs) The The whole thing about farming is you make more food than you need to eat. And that allows a division of labor and that allows a development of technology because people are now focusing on improving their life, not just surviving. And today it's on steroids. Yeah, having so much that you can sell and have ample amounts for, you know, your your storehouses. Yes. And when, but when you have extra food, that means some people can be released from farming. And now you have government, you have priests, you have, you know, architects, you have planners, you have soldiers, you know, all the parts of society naturally develop once you can feed all the different types of people. And Neanderthals could never do that. They were living in a place that you couldn't farm and they never had a large enough population. 
and they didn't live very long. They were dying of you know cave bear bites and broken legs. And so if you've got a lifespan of 20 years, 30 years, you don't pass on a lot of knowledge to your children. But they did have technology, cool technology. They had all sorts of different tools. In different places, they had different tools in different places. So one place they might use a particular type of rock. Another place they use a particular species of shell. Huh. Because that's the one that wouldn't break when you're scraping the cow skin or the deer skin. Oh. Huh. Really, I mean, it's really cool stuff. And, and the, the coolest technology that I know of that from Neanderthals is, is a pitch they made out of birch bark. And they made it by burning, which means they had fire. And that was a huge thing that paleontologists don't want to admit. Neanderthals used fire. They lined up fires in their caves against the wall so that the, oh. the smoke would naturally rise up the wall and leave the cave. It wouldn't fill the cave up. They had a convection going. And they spaced them apart so people could sleep in between the fires, one person on each side of a fire, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they're, they're really ingenious people. But birch bark, if you take it and make a cone out of it and set it in a fire at just the right temperature, it'll boil down all the, all the resins and oils. First of all, smell really good. It'll smell like wintergreen at first. But then it'll boil down to a, a, a pitchy tar while the rest of the world was using deer guts to make string and tie their spear points to their spear shafts. And Neanderthals were making a super glue made out of birch tar to glue their spear points to their spear shafts. Wow. I was going to ask, how much of this would be comparable to Native American technology like that? Uh, probably less, less, or probably more primitive than Native American technology. Because Native Americans had bows okay. and arrows. But still. They had wigwams. Yeah. They had, you know, Cahokia in Illinois. They had all, you know, complex societies and, and millions and millions and millions of people. Our, our opinion of Native Americans is um, a little bit wrong because most of what we think we know about them is post-Columbus after 90% of the population died away. And you can't have a stable society when so many people are dying of diseases. So, yeah. yeah, Native Americans are a lot more sophisticated than most people give them credit for. Just, you know, think cowboys and Indians and stuff like that. Now, that, that's a late stage in their history. But Neanderthals never attained that level of sophistication. I think just because life was so hard. I don't think it's because they're stupid. Because, I mean, they, they knew fire. They planned their settlements. They planned their living spaces. Looks like um, from holes in the, in the caves, it looks like they partitioned the caves into different areas of living cool here's my living room <laughs> now there's not much evidence of them living outside of caves and there's two reasons for that two possible reasons one is maybe they only lived in caves the other is maybe that 200,000 years is a mirage huh and we don't find a lot of evidence for them outside of caves because that they didn't have 200,000 years to build up you know evidence campsites and and you know places like that well, and I would also understand if they wouldn't be able to survive the elements well, as time went by. Would that make sense? Yeah, but build a house, man. I mean, you, you build yeah. a lean-to, you build a wigwam, you build a, a, a mud daub stick house. I mean, there's lots of ways to stay warm and dry. And people all over the world have done it. And there, there aren't that many caves in the world. That's the other issue. I mean, yeah, if you're within a one-hour drive of Chattanooga, I think there are 5,000 caves. But most of them are not livable. You know, livable cave, you need a horizontal entrance, you need a big chamber, it's got to be dry, you have to have some ventilation, you need some sunlight. You know, people don't live in holes in the ground. 
That's not what they do. And the caves that they lived in, some of them are really majestic. Not all of them, but most of them. So why do you think, how do you think they got around so much? Uh, do, you, do you think that they were world travelers or was that something that happened in a short window of a few generations and they just basically traveled to a place and then settled in and stayed? Honestly, I think they're a small post-flood people that spread out into a vast area and became isolated from one another. But because of the genetic evidence, it looks like they knew where each other were somehow and they did have some cultural exchange, a little bit going on. I can't explain it just because it's one of those things that we're just discovering now. So when, they're, when it comes to a group like this, do you think that there are uh, things that you expect to discover? Do you, are there some more discoveries that, you, you know, that haven't been done, but unofficially you kind of think they're going to find? Yeah, I'm expecting them to find or at least acknowledge the evidence that is already accumulating for symbolic representation. Uh, for language, because they had the FOXP2 gene, just like modern humans have. Slightly different variant, fine, but chimpanzees don't have that gene, and that is strongly associated with the ability to speak. They had a hyoid bone, just like modern humans have, and chimpanzees do not have. And the hyoid bone is what gives us the ability to talk. So not only talking, they could probably sing. They'd be very modern-like here. And and if they could do that, yeah, maybe they had only uh, oral communication but you know some of those cave paintings specifically some of them in um in spain that they're dating the uh, carbon 14 dating of the fireplaces in the cave and they're like you know what this is neanderthal territory this is neanderthal time and they drew pictures of seals and they look like seals and there's seals on the cave wall and the carbon dating puts it here now so people say oh no no the, the seal paintings were much later it couldn't be neanderthal and there's other places where it looks like there might be a calendar. There's all these funny marks on, on, in Neanderthal-like caves. You know, funny, you know, like cat scratch when you, you're counting one, two, three, four, and make a five and you cross it. It's not that same system, but there's all these marks. And those marks quite possibly are calendar marks, as if they're, you know, following the, the passage of time. And some of the cave paintings that might be Neanderthal, might not be, might be actually constellations. So it's not just animals. It's actually it's the map of the heavens. Weird stuff back there. There's um, huh. I mentioned a little earlier. Somebody found a in um, I don't remember where. I think Central Europe. I think they found a flute made out of a I think a deer antler. And there's four. There's two two very round, evenly spaced holes. And the flute is broken at both ends across two other holes. So there was at least four holes in this thing. And based on the spacing, they're like, oh. This is pentatonic, five notes to the, to the octave, like Eastern music. The Chinese music sounds a little odd to oh. us because they don't have eight notes in their scale. They have five notes in their scale. And so they're like, Neanderthals played music and it was pentatonic? Wow. Yeah. No, oh, no, no. That's, not, those are, those, that's a hyena bite in the bone. That's what caused those holes. And then people are like, no, they're evenly spaced and they're perfectly round. And they fit, yeah, hu- and they hit, fit human fingers. Oh, it's not Neanderthal. That's uh, later on. That must have fallen into the Neanderthal area because modern man later on made that. Okay, maybe. But it's getting really hard for the paleontologists to defend that Neanderthals are primitive and stupid, especially when we find so much of their DNA amongst Native, uh, not Native, amongst um, modern Americans. Sorry, I keep uh, mixing up Native American and modern man. Yeah. Especially when we find so much of their DNA in modern man. I mean, I'm 3% Neanderthal. You're th- about 3% Neanderthal. You put, you know, 5 or 10 or 15 Europeans in a room, 
and you've got more than half the Neanderthal genome there. There are ancestors, just as much as other people are our ancestors. In fact, they're a large fraction of our ancestry. And talking about Denisovans, other enigmatic people that were first described from DNA. We don't have a full skeleton of them. But from a finger bone that they found at Denisova Cave, they sequenced the genome of a girl who is as different from modern man as Neanderthals are, just a slightly more related to Neanderthals than to modern man, but not very much so. And they found people now in Papua New Guinea who are up to 7% Denisovan in their genetics. Add to hmm. 3% Neanderthal, and their 10% of their DNA is not modern. 10% of their DNA did not come out of Africa in the evolutionary model. And yet they're perfectly intelligent. They're normal, average, modern people, and 10% of their DNA is not so-called modern DNA. What that means is that these non-modern peoples, they really were modern people. They're homo sapiens, and they're intelligent. Interesting. And that, man, the things they ate, they ate um, all sorts of different meat, of course, but some Neanderthal sites don't have much meat, and some Neanderthal sites have almost all meat. So they're, uh, what's it called, exploiting their environment. Is exploiting the right word? They're exploiting the environment that they had in order to survive, and their diet depended upon what was available. Yeah, sure. And so we see pine nuts. We see edible mosses. We see mushrooms, grass seeds, legumes, which means beans, different nuts, acorns, figs, uh, herbs like yarrow and chamomile. That's pretty cool diet. That is. In fact, one of the um, one of the molds is penicillium. That's what we get penicillin from. Wait a second. Did they have medicinal understanding? Yeah, because some of the acorns, I mean, white oak acorns, you can eat them. You grind them up and they make a nice flour. You make pancakes out of them. You know, they're, they're really good for your blood sugar, people say. White oak, white oak acorns are perfectly edible. Red oak acorns, though, have too much tannin in them. And you have to soak them and rinse and soak and rinse and soak and rinse a whole bunch of times to get the tannins out before they're edible. But the acorns that they're accumulating were the ones with the tannins, as if they were maybe eating, using them for, you know, medicine like the yarrow and the chamomile. Those are things you don't necessarily eat because they're really bitter, and yet they were collecting them. And the, uh, the penicillium, and poplar. Now, poplar is not the tulip poplar that we have here in the South. So forget the American poplar type of tree. Poplar in the East is uh, it's in the willow family. And we know that you get aspirin, salicylic acid, is the main component of aspirin, from willow bark. And the types of poplars that they were harvesting were the types that there was aspirin-like substances, salicylic acid, in the bark. And not all species in that group of trees has it. So they knew which tree would give them a numbing effect if they chewed on or, or soaked the bark and which ones wouldn't. So they had medicine. And when we look in the graves, there's plenty of Neanderthal skeletons that had some traumatic injury and healed. Wow. And it looks like s- some of them were injured, like deformed injured, and had been taken care of for at least several years afterwards. Okay, I don't know how I feel about dairy cow milk being technology, but that's technology. <laughs> yes, it is. Taking care of people, that means you care for people. That means the family groups loved each other, and they didn't just leave them on the side of the trail to die and get eaten by a hyena. They took care of each other. Is really human sounding. That's true. It makes a lot of sense. When you consider the meat that they ate, big animals, 
uh, on the island of, uh, I think it's Jersey. I don't think it's Guernsey. I think it's Jersey in one of the Channel Islands, which is part of England, but it's right next to France. I'm almost within shouting distance of France. Um, on one of the Channel Islands, there's a place, and back in the day, it was connected to France when the sea level was lower. Um, but there's a place with a whole bunch of large animal bones at the bottom of a cliff. So just like Native Americans, they were corralling animals into a defile or something and scaring them so they run off a cliff and they go and harvest them after they smash in the bottom and died. Oh, uh, cool. yeah. But something like that would create too much meat for a family to eat. You wouldn't want to you know, kill you know, half a dozen woolly rhinoceroses. What good would that be if you only had 10 people? Unless you could preserve the meat. Oh. Oh, indeed. Oh, that, that, okay, now we're getting somewhere. It's almost certain that they understood how to dry or salt or somehow preserve meat because they were collecting too much of it. They ha- you, you can't just take rot, you know, raw meat and put it in your cave. You can't do that. You have to preserve it. They must have maybe smoke it. They must have known how to preserve meat, which is real smart. And if you do it wrong, you die of dysentery. And they weren't dying necessarily of that. They understood preservation and maybe some medicine. But they ate woolly rhinos and ibex and aurochs, which are the um, the ancient uh, ox, the, you know, the giant cows with the giant horns with this huge span and these amazingly huge animals. They ate them. They ate roe deer. They ate seafood. Wait a minute. Seafood? Yeah, they ate seal. They ate dolphin. They ate tuna. Wait, 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 hold on. They had a good deal in their diet. Tuna doesn't come into shore. Tuna is an open water fish. So they had boats. And they had to have boats because they made it to some of the Mediterranean islands. Oh, interesting. That are never connected to land, even at the height of the Ice Age when the water level is its lowest. They were islands, and yet Neanderthals made it there. So they had to have boats. They ate shellfish, and it looks like they might have stored the shellfish in wet moss. Because a, a clam can live out of the water for a long time, as long as its, its gills are moist. You can't just set it on the shore, but if you put it in that like damp moss, it could stay alive for several days. You don't want to eat a dead clam. You don't want a clam <laughs> to die and have it sit yeah. there for a couple of days. You try it because you're going to die of food poisoning. I think I would. But a live clam, throw it on the fire. It's, you know, it's in this protective shell. You just roast them right there. As long as it's alive before you put it there. Yum, yum, yum. So this is not the Neanderthal we grew up with. They... um. They collected grapevines, and grapevines don't have a food property, but they could be medicinal. They ate pistachios from the Persian turpentine tree. Now, that doesn't sound like the edible pistachios that we might get in a bag at the grocery store. I don't know what ervil is, E-R-V-I-L. Is that chervil? I don't know. I just found this on on some different sources. Ervil, whatever that is, and, of course, the the red oak acorns. Yeah. So, and, And we can also tell what they're eating from their dental plaque. Oh, my. The, the tartar that builds up around teeth, they can chisel that away, and they can look at it and say, oh, this person was eating X, Y, and Z. That's really cool. So we know they had a diverse diet. It wasn't just meat. It was a lot of things and a huge repertoire of things that they were able to get in their environment. Cool stuff. Oh, they also they made twine. They made string. That's a pretty good technology. Yeah, three-ply. They, they, they take plant fibers and twine them together. And if that was true, that means they could have had baskets. They could have had sewing. That's another weird thing is we don't find awls and needles and things like that. But if they're going to live in you know, Asia 
they need close fitting waterproof clothing. You don't just have a poncho on and go strutting out into Siberia in the wintertime. You can't do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> but the Inuits, I mean, there's a, a movie I watched a long time ago. Some actor who I've recognized. I don't even remember the name of the movie. But this guy crashes. He's, he takes a sick Inuit woman. And he's going to fly her to a hospital. But the plane crashes. And they can't get out. And they have to overwinter. And she teaches him how to survive. And then she dies. And he walks out using Inuit technology. And the first thing she made him was waterproof boots from caribou or something like that. Hmm. And you, you need waterproof boots or you're free freeze and you're dead. Yeah. And so Neanderthals, they had to have clothing that wasn't just a dead animal thrown over their shoulders. That's ridiculous and dumb. It's true. Or else they can only go out when it's above 50 degrees outside or something like that. That's crazy. You, you wouldn't live in those environments during those seasons or that, that epoch of time without the ability to make really good clothing, but we don't have evidence for it. Except this one little piece of twine that someone found. And if they could spin or weave, they could do all sorts of things that that might surprise us. Because <laughs> you don't have to have a boot that's cut and sewed. You could actually tie it to your foot. And legs can you can use thongs to to tie leggings on. Okay, that's a little better. But they had to do something in order to survive. They also da 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 had makeup. I wrote makeup. A, I read it. I wrote, <laughs> okay. I wrote an article on creation.com about 10 years ago called The Painted Neanderthal. And what the paleoanthropologists have figured out was that they were scouring the landscape for rare minerals and bringing back, you know, pure uh, rocks made of natrogyrosite, which is an iron containing uh, a mineral. And they were grinding them up for cosmetics, makeup. And they found a shell with a hole punched in it. It looks like that's for a string to go around the neck so you could carry your shell around. And the shell was either decorated or the shell itself was a makeup container. (laughs) But they were, they were, they collected uh, lepidocrosite and hematite and pyrite and natural gyrosite. Those are some really specific minerals. All of those four happened to contain iron. So they had yellows and blacks and reds and oranges. The, those sorts of colors, no blue or anything like that. But were they, you know, were they painting their faces? Were they coloring their clothing? Why on earth would you collect those things? We also find in Neanderthal sites, they're collecting fossils and gemstones. Okay, so why would they have a collection just as uh, like things for their decor of culture, like things that they, they enjoy? Because they were inquisitive people who were wondering about the yeah. world just like we are. And some kid walking down the trail said, hey, I found this, I don't know what, trilobite fossil or a, you know, a bone in a rock. And he took it home and put it in his cave. I mean, what of two? And it's still there today. It's just amazingly cool. And yet, that is. the people, they did die out. They didn't make it till today. But they didn't. And here's the funny thing is, for a long time, we assumed that modern men wiped them out. Because, you know, they're animals. Oh, you know, they're just primitive, half half man, half ape, cavemen. You know, ha, ha, we're, we're so much advanced over them. But we can see in the archaeology, we can, we can follow modern man as he invaded Europe and Asia. We can trace the pathways. We can see the two different directions they came, and they met from the east and the west in northern France. But one of them came up through Hungary, and one of them came up through Spain. And we can see them living side by side with Neanderthals for a long time. Wow. And then the Neanderthals disappear. 
And so everyone assumed they just got wiped out, but no, their DNA is amongst us now. No, they didn't. Mess- I mean, I'm sure there was warfare. I'm sure there was cultural strife. When you have different people groups, they look different, they smell different, they have different foods, they have different languages. You know, there's people going to be arguing over hunting areas. And, you know, I'm, I'm making this, trying to uh, dig a ditch here so I can have a farm and you're trying to run caribou or, or woolly mammoths across my land, you know, and they, I'm going to fight you now. Well, that kind of stuff. I'm sure it was really ugly. But people are people and boys and girls are boys and girls. And you know what happens when you throw people into the mix? And sure enough, Neanderthal yeah. DNA is still with us now. Cool. Hmm. Very amazing. Yeah. So, what became of the Denis the the Denisovans? Oh, the Denisovans. Yeah, what became of the Denisovans? Well, we only know them from a couple of fossils that we pulled DNA out of. Oh, and only on you know, bones, not not full skeletons. Um, we know that your average Chinese, Japanese, East Asian person is about 0.5 percent Denisovan and three percent ish Neanderthal, but the uh, some people in Papua New Guinea, New Guinea, the big island of New Guinea, the Melanesians, they come up to 7% Denisovan. And it, it looks like there's an, at least an East and a West population. There might have been three different populations because we can tell that this person with Denisovan ancestry has a different Denisovan ancestry than this other person. Oh, huh. So it looks like as people were spreading out across the world, they ran into Denisovans and babies resulted from these interactions. And these people, they just merged into society and their children are with us today. But we don't know less about them because we don't see burials with them. We haven't found a, a Denisovan burial yet. We had that half Denisovan, half Neanderthal child. And we had the finger bone and we have a jaw bone, a couple other things. But we don't know what they were. I highly suspect that they are Homo erectus. Because Homo erectus is a set of skeletons with no DNA. Denisovan is DNA with no skeletons. <laughs> and Homo erectus is commonly found in Asia, Java, yeah, Indonesia, Peking man, and things like that. And, you know, that's where a lot of them live. They lived other places too, in Africa also. But I, I just, I'm really suspicious. And I'm wanting to know the answer to that mystery. Because if we can pull DNA out of, you know, a supposedly 500,000-year-old cave lion or something like that, then we can pull DNA out of, Homo erectus bones. Hmm. I just, I'm not sure if anyone's looked yet because they're too old. You see, they're, they're so, you know, 500,000, a million, two million years old. There's no DNA left. In fact, there would not be any DNA left if they were that old. They are early though, so I expect the DNA to be highly degraded, but I still think they're post flood. Therefore, only, you know, 4,000 years old, not 400,000 years old or older. And therefore, there's a chance that there's DNA there. And I just wish someone would look because I want to know. But most ancient bones don't have DNA. Some of them do. We just got to find a really well-preserved Homo erectus that people haven't touched with their fingers, and maybe we can pull some ancient DNA out of it. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That'd be awesome. I'm really excited about all these changes and the new findings in paleontology in general. This is great. (laughs) But remember, everything we said is controversial. Everything. Everything. Including the cosmetics? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, oh, no, they weren't doing that. It wasn't for that. No, no, that's just a chance finding and some paleontologists try to say it's not neanderthal and some say it is neanderthal it's, i mean literally they're fighting like cats and dogs well where there's smoke there's fire and one of the reasons they're fighting is because people are dragging their feet not wanting to admit that neanderthals are much more human than what they said 100 years ago are you saying that paleontologists find some of this stuff but then they're not willing to go on the record to say that they have it 
Well, that's an open question if, if they're hiding information or, I mean, like Du Bois who found Java Man, he hid skulls under the floorboards of his house for decades because he didn't want people to find them oh. because he knew he, they would contradict everything he said about Java Man. Man. But I don't wow. think, I think we've gotten more sophisticated and people realize they can't hide things because it ruins careers and things like that. Yeah. But they can slow walk the information and they can shout people down at conferences and belittling and sidelining definitely happens because, you know, humans are humans. So I don't know, but I do know that there is a resistance still to considering Neanderthals are fully human and they're different camps. And some people will call them homo Neanderthalensis and some people call them homo sapiens Neanderthalensis and they fight. Well, then uh, we'll wrap up there. I think so. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us on this quest. If you found this episode interesting in any way, uh, consider sharing it with a friend or a family member. And if you want to dig deeper into these topics, you can find links to stuff we discussed in the show notes on our website. They're available at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 27. Or if you're at your podcast player, the show notes are also with this episode in the app on your phone. And you should also check out biblicalgenetics.com. That is Rob's other project. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube. You've talked about the Neanderthals and Denisovans. I get all tongue-tied saying that name. Denisovans. Over there too, right? Yes. Yes, definitely. On the Biblical Genetics? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, awesome. You can go there, watch those videos, and also join in the discussions in the comments for the Biblical Genetics videos. And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox. Equinox.